0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Sweet, the Ladies Guide to Bro Culture, and welcome to the big, fat, two-part season finale. This is the uh, season one finale of, of uh, the Ladies Guide to Bro Culture, and I could not be more excited, intimidated, or less prepared for what we're <laughs> going to be discussing today. And what are we discussing today? We are discussing the monument to bro culture, the ultimate lit bro book Yes, goddammit, we are going to be talking about Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Infinite Jest was largely acclaimed upon its release. Um, in the review of Temporary Fiction, Stephen Moore called it a profound study of the postmodern condition. Uh, a review that David Foster Wallace would probably fucking hate. But um, in the New York Times, uh, it's called a masterpiece. Uh, that's a monster that nearly 1,100 pages of mind-blowing inventiveness and disarming sweetness. However, uh, in Michiko Kakutani's review in the New York Times, she said that it's a vast encyclopedic compendium of whatever crossed Wallace's mind, and no less than the Sterling Professor of the Humanities at Yale University, Harold Bloom, called it just awful, <laughs> with no discernible talent. Yeah. Mm. Um, Leo Scott uh, from the Times. Uh, wow, the Times is all over this book. Uh, called it uh, Pynchonesque elements feel rather willed and secondhand, but for the most part, it it was it was widely acclaimed upon its release. Not a huge seller, but it definitely became uh, a cult, a, a book that people, men mostly, gravitated toward, bought a lot of copies of, and of course, the scuttlebutt is, it is. Probably the most widely purchased book that gets the least amount of actual readers, and that's what we're here to talk about. And uh, I was very, uh, I was very afraid that nobody would volunteer for this <laughs> for this episode. I actually got a few volunteers, and my first volunteer, I could not have got uh, a better fit for this episode, uh, this book, everything. She is. A comedian, actress, educator. She does everything on stage. Voiceover artist. Say hello to Hannah Corrigan. Hello. Hi, Hannah. And sitting next to Hannah, he's a filmmaker. And he he read Infinite Jest on his own without <laughs> without having been prompted to do it for a podcast. And then when when then when I put him on the podcast, he read two more David Foster Wallace novels. This guy is all about the extra credit. Please say hello to Chris Montello. Thanks for having me. All right, you guys. Welcome to the finale. This <laughs> is it. Twenty-five episodes building up to this point. Infinite fucking jest. Ugh. Jesus H. Christ. All right. I almost <laughs> don't know where to begin. <laughs> Hannah, give us your first impressions. Tell us, tell us, uh, tell us about your infinite jest journey.
1: My infinite jest journey began when I bought it at a used bookstore um, so many years ago. (laughs) Because it was like, I've heard of this. It's a thing. Yeah. It was $5, I think. Um, And I was like, cool. Yeah. One should read this. Everybody talks about it. And then I bought it, and then it sat on my shelf for many for years yeah for which many, is many why years. when you posted about it i was like okay okay you shouldn't like marie kondo would be upset with me yeah if i didn't try to read this or throw it away and it's like okay i'll buy it i should try to read this why did i pay five dollars i could have bought a sandwich so <laughs> i took I, it's, I bet it's
0: about the size of a subway sandwich yeah a foot long oh
1: my god way heavier it's unbelievable you could really like this is a lethal weapon for yes, protection. Absolutely. For all the men who ask you about it on the subway. <laughs> um, yeah. I figured I and I require a deadline to do literally anything. At, so same.
0: same with me. That's what that's kind of the reason why kind of the same reason why I did this. Because like I think uh in my former life, uh I did at one time or another, not at the same time, we did have this discussion uh off air. I did own two copies of Infinite Jest, but not at the same time. <laughs> okay, uh, never read it. Uh, uh, I I had the cloud cover and I had the the cover that uh, y'all have. The I guess the the eye in the television cover. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, they are different. There are different versions of the book. I think there's oh, like really? different editorial choices made. Uh, oh. I don't know. Again, some guys. Some I don't guys don't know care. that. Some, don't it, care. No, nor nor do I. Can't
1: I. imagine how it would make a difference. (laughs) But
0: but apparently it does. Even the editions of the book make a difference. That's how deep it goes and why we don't know. But you've read it. Yeah. To the best of your ability. To the best of my ability. Please explain what it's about.
1: Oh, God. Um, It's about... (laughs) It's about David Foster Wallace and his struggles to live in the world, (laughs) it feels to me. It's like about, you could say it's about a a tennis academy and a bunch of addicts, right? uh, which it is, I guess. And it's about a slightly dystopian near future Mm -hmm. America. That is also what it's about. But I feel like it's really about David Foster Wallace and his struggles with um, depression, his family, America, consumerism, capitalism, all the things that angry young men feel, sad angry young men feel. um, And he's just processing it for all of us. And then we, I I guess, have to process it with him.
0: (laughs) And it only took 900 something pages to do that. all right. This is going to be fun. All right, Chris, yes. to the best of your ability, please explain the plot of Infinite Jest.
2: Wow. Well, you know what? I actually feel very similarly that basically, I mean, it's full of all this autobiographical stuff, right? So I really think it is about David Foster Wallace's own sort of, his head, basically. It's almost like somehow he took his brain and he just like, you know, crammed it into this book and and all that weird stuff is like like i don't know he's just like this guy who's like he's played tennis and he's like a film nerd and i guess he lived in massachusetts because it's set in massachusetts for some reason and you know it's almost i don't know it's like his own like personal fever dream uh of the 1990s and i think uh but you know i think at the same time like if you were to sort of dig out like a theme or like what it really is about i think i guess you know he must have been struggling with addiction at that time, and there are many characters who are addicts. And I think it is largely about um, maybe how like the, the zeitgeist of that time, you know, led to people sort of being hopeless. And I remember in an interview, he talks about how it's about like the American ideal of like you know the fact that your parents always told you that the world revolved around you, and that you know, I don't know. It's like I guess it's a portrait of America in the mid '90s from the perspective of David Foster Wallace while he himself was struggling with addiction. And I don't know. I guess that's an answer, but it's also just like him kind of dicking around and trying (laughs) to write like a big important book, I think, uh, because it has all these uh, things that like, I don't know, it it doesn't need to have.
1: I feel like if I were listening to this and hadn't read it, I would want a bit more of a concrete explanation, so I'm going to try to do that. Oh, please! I think do. these oh, are great. the correct answers. no. no I, of what I, it really is yes, about, but it, it is right, about right, right. like a boy named Hal. Yeah, who goes to a tennis academy in high school. His brothers, father, and mother are very important parts. It's also about a dystopian near future where America, where the uh, North America has become one. Uh, one country-ish type thing, and we've given uh, part of the Northeast to Canada because it's filled with garbage. Mm -hmm. There's um, some Quebecois, I guess, revolutionaries who are against the idea of a united North America, and Mm -hmm. they want to secede. There is a piece of entertainment that is so entertaining that it actually is lethal and people will die watching it because they keep watching it over and over again Mm. till they die. Um, That is produced by um, this main character's father and uh, the Quebecois people are trying to figure out uh, how to utilize it as a weapon or how to stop it, sometimes both. Uh, And it's also about an an addict Halfway house
0: mm.
1: um, and rehab, and a lot of addicts uh, and their struggles. and they all interconnect at certain points,
0: absolutely. yeah. I think uh, <clears throat> I think I'm going to pitch a new show on the network called. Please explain the plot of Infinite Jest. <laughs> We're just going to do that every week. Great. It would take a while. It would take. It would. It would be. It would be like a, a thirty episode. That was my best season. go, and that was very that, that was pretty accurate. I, and I asked you guys that first because I didn't really want to do it, but now I'm going <laughs> to take. Now I'm going to take my swing at it because uh, you know the format of the show is that I summarize the plot before we okay. get into the discussion. I didn't really want to, but here we go. All right. So, the, the, to the best of my ability. Infinite Jest is the story of Hal Incandenza, uh, a talented young student at the at the Enfield Tennis Academy in Massachusetts. Uh, the the academy was started by his mother and father. His father, James Incandenza, uh, was also a talented filmmaker and physicist that invented something called annular fusion, that uh, basically powers the universe of Infinite Jest and creates. That toxic waste situation that, that Hannah describes that they've just given away uh, basically the tri-state area to, back to Canada. It's now a big toxic wasteland where they create annular fusion that basically creates a world without any real need of anything. People just sort of like, it's not necessarily described in the book that way, but it, it seems like no one really has to work anymore. They they kind of just do stuff and abuse drugs and play tennis and watch TV. Um And it's all because of uh, Hal's father, James, inventing annular fusion. And then in his spare time, he was uh, an experimental filmmaker that created a number of experimental films, including six attempts at uh, a film called Infinite Jest, the film within the book, uh, which is what Hannah described as something so addictive. You can't stop watching it until you die and, and it attempts to be weaponized by Canadian separatists who no longer want to be a part of ONAN, O-N-A-N, uh, which is the unified North America of Mexico, Canada, and uh, the United States. And is also a biblical masturbation joke because ONAN uh, was the figure from the Bible who was killed for masturbating on the ground. Um, God, I didn't take a breath during that. All right, I'm going <laughs> to keep going. Um the action picks up. Uh, it's it's not in chronological order. The bu- the book starts with uh, Hal being rendered non communicative, uh, and then it flashes back uh, the, to the previous year, and we figure out why that is. By the way, uh, in the world of Infinite Jest, time is sponsored by corporations. Um, so most of the book takes place in the year of the dep- of the Depend Adult Undergarment. Um, the book ends in the year of Glad, as the the makers of the Glad trash bag. There's uh, several other years, basically maybe nine or ten years, within uh, Infinite Jest have been subsidized by corporations. Uh, Hal basically is, a, I think he's he like the second or third most talented student at the at the tennis academy, uh, heavily abusing drugs uh, and mostly marijuana. Um, and is just feeling very disaffected, and has a lot of pressure to do well, and uh, does not feel you know connected to his his fellow students. Um, meanwhile, there's there is the halfway house down the street, uh, which is populated by uh, sort of a, a revolving cast of characters that either come from the Canadian separatist part of the book or come from the tennis academy part of the book or just come in from the cold out of nowhere and show up for a a few hundred pages and go away. Uh, And what happens is that about halfway through the book, uh, a young woman named Joelle shows up at the halfway house, uh, Ennett house, and she is the star of James Incandenza's films, many of them anyway, Uh, went by the name of Madame Psychosis, which is... Uh, I guess a slant rhyme you would say on, on metempsychosis, which is a, it's a psychological state that is appropriate and I don't remember how. Um, <laughs> I've done a lot of research on this as well. Um, and uh, she shows up and is the star of the film Infinite Jest. She has been disfigured um, in a fight over the attentions of James's father fr- and his mother. Uh, they were in a non-sexual romance, I think is what happened. And then uh, Joelle got acid thrown in her face and then became uh, veiled. Uh, and there's a there's a league of, of veiled people called Uhid that appear in this book. And they're somehow related to the Canadian Separatists. I'm not exactly sure how. The Canadian Separatists, uh, the elite of the Canadian Separatists, are part of uh, a group of disabled assassins, including a man named Moraith, who... Communicates with someone uh, on the American side named Steeply, who poses as a woman but is not transgender, and they have a series of, of philosophical discussions about the universe and whatnot, while questioning Murray's, uh his loyalties. Is he a Canadian? Is he on? Is he on the side of Onan? What is his deal? I cannot believe I remembered all this. Oh my <laughs> god, <laughs> I, I, feel like, I feel like, um. I feel like someone just drilled into my head, and like <laughs> words are spo- are spewing out, and I have no idea what they actually mean. Basically, the the plot then, as I've as I've set the scene for the past seven minutes, the plot is that everyone wants to get a copy of the Master of Infinite Jest. Uh, and they don't know how to get it and they and all these elements of either trying to stop it or trying to capture it so they can attack the United States attack Onan uh, starts to converge on howling Condenenza himself because it's his relationship to his father that is basically the crux of why the film was created in the first place. Mm-hmm. So uh, and it comes out that, and i literally had to read this in a separate essay cuz i could not fucking understand it <laughs> it comes out that the master copy of infinite just the film was buried inside of the skull of his father and the and the book opens with with gately and and how digging his father up digging his father's head up and finding the the master tape missing granted this happens 800 pages Eight hundred pages of novel that happens in between it, so it's kind of hard to remember all that. That's why I had to reread that essay. And uh, then you come to find out that uh, it's actually uh, his older brother, James' older brother Oren, who's a who's a punter for the St. Louis Cardinals in this book mm-hmm. and is actually um, like a Unabomber figure sending sending copies of his father's film uh, to people that he feels, wronged his father in, in, during his life, and he's the one disseminating infinite jest. And, um, and then it's not clear what happens. Uh, basically, the, the book ends as it begins. Um, how he is poisoned with this uh, <laughs> this book, man. I'm telling you. This book. He is poisoned by the ghost of his father, I shit you not, uh, with a drug called DMZ. And it makes him unable to communicate except with his father. Because he was never, he was not able to communicate with his father during his life. And uh, his father created the drug, DMZ, and the film Infinite Jest so that they could communicate with each other. But he died, but then he became a ghost. Don't ask me how that fuck that happened. It has something to do with Hamlet. And um, that's it. That's Infinite Jest. But also not, because there's also the guy that runs the tennis academy that's married to his mother, in much the same way that Polonius married Gertrude in Hamlet. Oh my God! There is so much to this book. Hannah, are are you? <laughs> How do you feel about all of that?
1: It's like, oh my God! It's exhausting. It's it is exhausting, exhausting to talk about. It's exhausting to think about. Yeah, it's Chris,
0: do dog. you do you feel that that was an accurate description of the plot of Infinite Jest?
2: O- honestly. I think that's it. I think you don't have to read it now. Anybody <laughs> like like I was like I was like sitting here nodding like, oh, yeah, that does happen. Oh, oh yeah, 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 that is, that is what happens. So then I'm just like, oh, yeah, was there anything else? Like,
1: <laughs> well, it's like you can't say less than that.
2: You yeah, know I mean, true. That's what's you crazy. Say you less. cannot
1: say any less yeah, you, than that and be telling the plot of Infinite Jest. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. Game of Thrones is complicated, but you can be like, OK, yeah, there's a throne.
0: There's a throne.
1: Everybody wants it. Right. Everybody trying to get on right. the throne. Right there in the title. In King's Landing. There's a lot of places up north. There's dead people. They're coming. There's dragons. That's Game of Thrones. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That takes 20 seconds, and that is Game of Thrones. And there's a lot more. We could go into more. Sure, sure. And yeah. and George R. R. Martin did us all kindness, and said, I have more. I have yeah. the whole universe, but I'm not going to make you read all of it. I will write a separate book for y'all nerds. Yeah. Who you want to know every damn house and the entire thousand year history. I wrote it, but I won't force you to read it right. in between the <laughs> good sexy
0: scenes. Yeah. I, I will not force you to flip back to the annotated fucking foot to the endnotes, by the way, that are like there are end notes in this book that are that are book chapters in and of themselves. There's like a mm. fifty page end note in this in this book. Um mm. I I was I was telling everyone before we started recording that I was trying to save my voice because I knew that was going to happen. I knew that once I started talking about this, it was going to be like it was going to be like a a vomit of of text that came out of my brain. Like this thing's been sitting in there. I don't know if you're familiar uh, with the with the play Waiting for Godot. Mm -hmm. Um, There's uh, I went to theater school. Of course you did. (laughs) As 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 we all did. Um. So there's like a third character in Waiting for Godot. He's like a slave, and they try to mis—they <clears throat> kind of mistreat him a bit. He does not speak until the very end, and then he basically just vomits this like nonsense yeah. for pages and pages and pages. I, thats what I feel like. I feel like I'm—I'm yeah. I'm the slave from Waiting for Godot, and like I've just—I've <laughs> just—I've just whipped myself into like a a vomit of words, mm. and I. Do not know how to feel about that. I feel like I feel like I have become a character in this book. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I need to go consult my dead father's ghost <laughs> yeah. and well, take the fungus stuff and, and then never speak again.
2: <laughs> I mean, I guess it's a question of like, yes, that's what happens in the plot. But how much (laughs) is it just an excuse, you know, like I need to have like David Fouse Wallace is saying, I need to have a plot for things to happen. But really, I just want to have a book where I'm exploring these things about addiction. Like we were saying at the very beginning, that it's really just about him and like these thoughts and things that he wants to express. He's kind of like, well, I need it to be a book. So these things need to happen. And, you know maybe it's not that maybe it's not so complex maybe it is just like hey this is just what david foster wallace yeah no and that's that's the simple summary
0: i was just i I was in when when you said that in in my head i um i had this like flash in my head that that i would cut the episode so that i would basically spend 12 minutes explaining the plot and then i would cut out everything that happened in between it and then just cut to you going well, yes, that's what happened in the plot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. No, but, like, because, like, what I'm saying is that, like, you leave out all the stuff where, like, he literally just spends hundreds of pages, like, describing, like, what it feels like to be addicted. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You like, and those kinds yes. of things. It's almost like, because he's an essayist, too, and, like. It's like like okay, I want to write an essay about this, but then kind of insert it into this book and like, you know, he's like being an essayist and a novelist and a, you know, all these things like at the same time and
0: Yeah. No, yeah. I I that I definitely agree with. There's definitely yeah, yeah. even as as complicated as the plot is, it's still mostly not plot in this novel. Exactly. There's, it's exactly. still mostly stuff. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of
0: stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah a lot of yeah. stuff.
2: Yeah. It's tennis, a lot of tennis. A
0: lot of tennis stuff. All right. Um now normally we go to um, normally we go to a clip and my original thought was to play clips from the audiobook, but God, I hate that guy's voice so much. The one the guy that does the audiobook for this. Uh, so I'm just gonna read uh, some short excerpts and basically uh, pivoting off what Chris just said. Yes, that all of that stuff about Canadian separatists and, and addictive movies and and fusion technology is technically what happens, but it's not most of what this book is. Most of this book is um, him talking about stuff. Mm-hmm. So here's, uh, here's a quick uh, excerpt uh, from Infinite Jest talking about depression. This is directly from uh, the book, Infinite Jest. It's in the mornings after the spider and heights dreams that are the most painful that it takes sometimes three coffees and two showers and sometimes a run to loosen the grip on his soul's throat. And these post-dreams mornings are even worse if he wakes unalone, if the previous night's subject is still there, wanting to twitter or to cuddle. And like Spoon, asking what exactly is the story with the foggy inverted numbers on the bathroom floor, commenting on his night sweats, clattering around in the kitchen making kippers or bacon, Or something more hideous and unhoneyed he's supposed to eat with with post-coital male gusto. The ones who have this thing about, they call it feeding my man. Wanting a man who can barely keep down AM honey toast. To east with male gusto, elbows out and shoveling and can barely, shoveling making little noises. Even when alone, unable to uncurl alone and eat slowly up and wing out the sheet. Go to the bathroom. These darkest mornings start days that Oren can't even bring himself for hours to think about how he'll get through the day. These worst mornings with cold floors and hot windows and merciless light. The soul's certainty that the day will have to be not traversed but sort of climbed vertically and then that going to sleep again at the end of it will be like falling again off something tall and sheer. I mean that's objectively beautiful writing for the most part. Um, I think uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, I, I think that I really wish he didn't put it into a book about about a, a man that has prosthetic breasts so he can become a better journalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I think stuff like that is is wonderful. And I've read his essays, and I and I can and I actually liked a lot of them. Hmm. Uh, Hannah. Your thoughts on that little snippet. I'm sure you didn't remember that in, like, the span of all the stuff that happened.
1: Not particularly, but it feels of the vibe. It
0: feels of the vibe, yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. It's a lot of vibe. It, and it's so much it, that it's yeah. hard to know. What is worth your time to really savor? You know, absolutely, I mean? yes, it's like,
0: exactly. That's, kind, I, that's what. I, uh, I yes. so
1: much to get through. So probably while reading that, I was like, Like I'm trying to read 900 pages. So to me, when you read that, when you took the time to say it aloud and actually engaging with that image of mm-hmm. falling off a sheer cliff down to sleep, that um is the first is absolutely the first time I actually heard it While reading it, I was like, fine, I've down to say next next. Yeah, like and definitely. I <laughs> it, it it could be poetry, but poetry requires brevity. It requires highlighting and lifting the text so that we say, this is important. Spend your time. Yeah, and uh, I feel that it is lost. Uh, but but I appreciate it more hearing you say it. I actually, it's interesting for me to say that Harold Bloom, um, I forget the direct quote, but said it was a pile of crap. Yeah, um, pretty much. I don't yeah. know what he exactly said, but I I, I studied with him in college. Um, well, I, I oh, took a course with Harold Bloom, a giant chauvinist. Um, <laughs> we could talk about that later. <laughs> we um, absolutely will, um, by he, the way. He called The Art of Reading a Poem, and it, it came up. While reading this book, I was like it this is the opposite of poetry. Poetry requires less <laughs>
0: it does right so it's about it carving things away yeah, it's about it's like sculpting it's mm-hmm. what you take away what's important all right chris i i i when you heard that again, I'm sure you didn't remember that specific quote, but do nope. you do you have like when you when you read this book originally, do you did you have those reactions where like this this is beautiful writing, this is beautiful writing, this is beautiful writing, or 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 was it just a thing that you consumed? Because my my theory is that there's mm. just too much here.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think it's. It, uh, I mean, like I say that I, I read this book, but what I mean is that I've turned every page in succession and <laughs> was looking at it at the same time and trying to absorb it but there were probably you know entire pages of of things that like completely went over my head and you know I was reading it on the subway and like you know that's not the best time I think for like really digging into something intellectually and stuff so in some ways it was kind of like I don't want to say like all consuming is is a good word it's almost like You know, I just need to like have something to like focus on, and and maybe I'm not really absorbing it. But there certainly were like specific moments that I can recall and specific things that like still stick with me after a year. I read it a year ago. There are still things that I'm like, oh yeah, this part of Infinite Jest was something that like I I really enjoyed, and like it was sort of well worth the journey to like reach those like little moments where it's like, oh Yeah. yeah, this is sticking with me, but. You know, it was, like, the process of, like, getting to those those moments where you're just kind of, like, drifting in and out. And then you go in and it's like, oh, this is a cool part. And then you're like, oh, now it's about tennis again. And, you know, <laughs> like, and then, you know, but there are definitely things that, like, I still remember. Not specifically, like, maybe the writing, but maybe some ideas and some sort of concepts and things that, that
0: I enjoyed or now, related to. You 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 also did the extra step because you'd already read the book. You, you read... You read his essay work, which mm, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I I think that my personal feeling is that David Foster Balls is a very talented essayist and journalist, mm-hmm. uh, certainly he had, had a way with words. I'm not saying that he wasn't a good writer and, and that he could, I mean, he could, his his corpse could write circles around me now, mm-hmm. but um, I think that I personally feel Infinite Jest was, was like a work of ego as much as anything else, like he was trying, he was, mm-hmm. he was shooting for the stars, um, and I think that it was um, – he's, like, trying to think in the terms of, like, you know, these these guys who dropped these doorstops uh, of novels like Pynchon um, or Don DeLillo and, uh, you know, guys that were, you know, a, a generation or two um, in front of him. Mm. Um, and I think that was his attempt to do that. But I think that his soul was as an essayist. Uh, and you read – a work of his essays that's right. recently, and ha- what what do you feel compared to reading like a concise, topic driven David Foster Wallace versus the brain untethered?
2: Well, I think it's a similar thing uh, in a way because uh, again, there's the tennis. I'm going to keep coming back to that. I I'm oh, not, yeah. I'm not no, interested. I, I in, totally
0: get that. I, I did read tennis. his his essay on, on Federer, and it was actually very good. And I fucking hate tennis. Yeah,
2: but that's <laughs> but that's the thing is I read. Um, a supposedly fun thing that I will never do again this is his essay collection and so he has an essay on tennis and I'm like oh you know I'm okay I'm not really into this yeah but then you know he has the essay on on David Lynch and and it's like oh I understand this this is like this appeals to me it's about film I get it and then it's like oh it's tennis again
1: I would resp- I would call him a genius if the point of the book was the feeling that you get while trying to read the book
0: hmm. Yeah. And
1: it it is like if a, if I force a person to sit down and read every one of these words for nine hundred pages, including the the end notes, um, and they feel so overwhelmed by the amount of information, people, uh, you know, just uh, phrases. Um, th- little terms that you don't understand and you just have to keep reading and it just keeps going and it keeps going and you're like, is this modernity? Is this what you mean? (laughs) I don't think it is what you meant, but I did have a profound um, feeling um, that I have not had before trying Mm -hmm. to get through the world he's created. Mm.
0: That was bad. (laughs) It was bad. It was a bad but profound feeling.
1: I don't know. I was like, I don't think he's trying to punish me. I feel like he wants to write all these words down and Uh, wants me to think about the words, but I felt the task of climbing over this book was like climbing Everest. And like, that is a really unpleasant thing. And I don't understand why people do it because, um, you know, you could just climb a smaller mountain. That's easier. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I remember, (laughs) I remember when I was in college and we were talking about the wasteland by T.S. Eliot, and, uh, the professor was like, "Yeah, he wrote it this way so that people wouldn't get it. So he wanted the audience to be sort of self-selecting."
1: It's not like I don't get it, though. Yeah. That's what annoys me. Yeah it's, I, like, yeah, it's not like I don't get it. Like we get, I get it, it. I just don't. I just want it to be over. Right? We just <laughs> don't
0: want it. All of this. Yeah. Um, also,
1: the other class Harold Bloom teaches is about Shakespeare, and I also thought a lot about Shakespeare. And it's mm-hmm. like, I—that is my favorite writer and who I declare to be a, a genius mm. and this is so not that <laughs> and I was really trying to figure out why exactly it wasn't that and what genius really means
0: I you know I, I was just about to make the point and I, and I kind of did uh, a few minutes ago about like there's like a there's like a, a bro literature cult of like of like uh logaria and like just being very complicated and being very long and, and like and having plots that are like looping and in, into themselves, but like I think that in the world of literature that there's there's broke camps for everything because there's also Hemingway, he who is very concise, and very uh, and very withholding and also very douchey and broy, and he has his own uh, partisans that will tell you be like Hemingway. Or will tell you to be like, you know, Hunter S. Thompson and and just, you know, just write as fast as you can or like Jack Kerouac. And I think that there's I think that there's a bro for everything in the world of books. Mm. And uh, there's just a lot of arguments about that. Like what what makes a great bro writer a great bro writer? And I think they they come in every flavor. Your dad. (laughs) I guess it (laughs) depends. There you go. Depends on your dad. Depends on
1: what you haven't gone to therapy about.
0: Yeah. All right, uh, Chris. Um, what possessed you to to read this book in the first place? Like, like what what brought you to it? Well, similar, it, it is a substantial commitment.
2: Well, so, similarly to Hannah, I found it for five dollars at the Strand, and uh, I don't know. I guess. Well, I guess. I don't know. I, I I think I had read something online by a critic that I admired the that it was worth reading, and and I never thought that it was. Um. I, I kind of had this this thing in my head of like, oh, I'm never going to read that. It, like it doesn't appeal to me. It's yeah. not to my taste or anything like that. But then I was like, well, you know, it's cheap and I'm, I kind of like collecting books in a way and, and I have plenty that I haven't read. But this one I thought, okay, I'll give, it, I'll give it a shot. And so I did and I guess you get to a point where it's like y- you just want to finish it to say that you finished it and I have a hard time maybe giving up once i've started a book so it just kind of happened that way and and uh, it's that feeling of accomplishment at the end of the day like you said that you know you climb the mountain and and yeah uh, yeah i guess i guess that's that's the answer it's just that like once i was in it you know i had to i had to see it to the end and and i did
0: i mean we're all in a pretty rarefied club people who have actually read infinite jest like that's that is that is a a rare there's a rarefied club that is like that's like the American Express Black Card <laughs> of nothing important, but um, but Chris, uh, like, what would what would your ordinary like preferred sort of like um book be like? Like what like what what gives you the most pleasure uh, in as far as books go?
2: I like uh, nonfiction about pop culture. I read a lot of books about music and specifically like rock music and film history. And so there, yeah, okay, I
0: can kind of see that because because there is a lot of pop culture intertwined in in this book like yeah, there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of pop culture that's manufactured for the book mm-hmm. that only exists in its universe and then it also intertwines with yeah with um, pop culture um that existed at the time
2: mm-hmm. my favorite part of the book is when uh, they list all of the films directed by uh uh james incandenza he's the he's the filmmaker in the book and they literally just he has a footnote where he just lists every single film that he made as though it were a real film like what was the format what did he shoot it on who are the actors like a real like filmography and and actually that that section is is a lot of fun too because he keeps calling back to it and like a lot of yeah a lot of the film synopses like become plot points later and it's like this kind of fun like solving the puzzle, feeling of like, oh yeah, I remember that that was the plot of a film, and now it's happening in the book, and there are those kinds of moments that that I that I can recall. Where he's just kind of, he's just kind of having fun in a way, making these like connections happen, and like, right.
0: I don't know. Uh, now, people who know David Foster Wallace that aren't like book people, they know him either for the movie that was made about his his tour, um, mm-hmm. called The End of the Tour with Jason Siegel. Or they know about his uh, commencement speech that he gave, that became a small book. That was actually probably, I think, it was his best-selling book. Actually, it's like a 50-page commencement commencement speech that's basically just him giving life advice to college students, and it was very much unlike him. Um, and uh, in the movie, he comes across as kind of like you know this this kind of like sweet-natured, depressed guy that has a lot of like wisdom to offer, and I think that. Is kind of like the the image that um, that we have. Although, uh, from what I understand, if you ask people like Mary Carr, uh, the the actual uh, behavior of David Foster Wallace could get pretty toxic. But um, I did want to read this next quote uh, from Infinite Jest, and it is kind of uh, David Foster Walls in his in his motivational speaker mode. And then uh, I'm going to pivot a little bit off that. So here is uh, David Foster Wallace talking about fear and, uh, and uh, being like a, a good um, performer, uh, athlete, etc. He says, be a student of the game. Like most cliches of sport, this is profound. You can be shaped or you can be broken. There's not much in between. Try to learn. Be coachable. Try to learn from everybody, especially those who fail. This is hard. Opponents. It's all educational. How promising you are as a student of the game is a function of what you can pay attention to without running away. Nets and fences can be mirrors. And between nets and fences, opponents are also mirrors. This is why the whole thing is scary. This is why all opponents are scary, and weaker opponents are especially scary. See yourself in your opponents. They will bring you to understand the game, to accept the fact that the game is about managed fear. That's that's its object is to send you from yourself what hope you will not return. All right. So I kind of, I kind of muffed the last sentence. Sorry, David. But, um, yeah, again, it's well written, good advice. Um, I think if I just came across that on like, you know, uh, an internet quote section on how to be a, you know, how to, you know, motivate yourself, that would sound pretty, that would sound pretty good. That sounds like good advice, I think. I don't know. You may disagree, Hannah.
1: Well, I just like, can you say it in your own words?
0: Can I say? Oh, I absolutely can. Um, uh, basically, he's saying that uh, you know, fear is fear is the whole game. He's saying that you're afraid. You should be afraid and utilize that fear to pay attention to the environment. Uh, even even if you're facing someone weaker than you, or or you're or you're not very strong yourself, be afraid, uh, and that fear will sharpen your attention, and will. Uh, Allow you to perform at a level that that you need to be at.
1: Yeah, I liked how you said it better. <laughs> well, Thank you,
2: <laughs>
1: thank you. Well, it's like I understood it. I've never been managed. I, I, I don't shelf. even know thank if that's. So I don't know if that's what he meant. I didn't understand what he meant. I well, you know what I mean, and if I like what you said. Well, thanks. That might have been what he meant. It, it to me, what he said is not clear because it's like maybe I can kind of guess that that's what he means, but also, mm-hmm. or is it that the fear is what you're competing against? You know, what I mean, yeah. it just. It doesn't. Uh, I can see him reaching to tell me things, and sure. it's like, you can you just tell them to me? Like, <laughs> right. can you tell them in a way right. I'm going to understand. Yeah. Why are you purposely obscuring it and making it harder to understand?
0: I've really made a lot of effort in this part of the podcast to not talk about his life um, mm. because I think I think that's what he would want. Uh, I'm trying to respect what I feel would be his artistic wishes. I don't think he wants me to try to get into his head. Sure. Uh, and also, I don't think, I don't think I need to know that David Foster Wallace was, you know, a, 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 you know, diagnosed major depression, uh, substance abusing um, person to whether or not I should appreciate his book. Mm. I, I don't think I should. I, I, I don't, don't think his,
1: somebody who wasn't could have written this book. But that's like yeah, totally reasonable. That's why it's it's that's why he's an authority on the topic. Yeah,
0: I I think I think that's true. I think I think the fact that he struggled with those things is true. But I don't want to be like, well, this book is great because he was an addict and sure. he and he committed suicide. Sure. Um, especially the suicide part. I think you know. I think when someone. When someone dies young like that, and we, we've had this discussion a few times on this on this podcast, it kind of like dips them in amber. Like everything they do becomes sort of more profound because they because they lost the struggle uh, to like control their demons, so that there's like a tragedy to it. Like this book is is like a map of a mind of someone who couldn't who who ultimately couldn't get through life and mm. and took it. Um. And on the other hand, I, I think that you know, it, I don't know. This book is so complicated. Like, I, I don't <laughs> want, I don't want I, I don't want this discussion. like the, in in the next in next week's show, yes, but in this discussion, I, I, I'm trying to limit myself to the text. You guys can talk about whatever you want, sure. but like, I want I want to talk about just the text of the book because I again, I feel like that's what he would have wanted. I think he I think he wants the book to stand on its own. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he wants us to consider the fact that he struggled with addiction to to inform whether or not that we feel that his description of addiction is accurate or not sure.
2: well what i think is interesting is is that um he was an a journalist and so he, he was like a writer in the most professional way i mean this was his life was just writing and i wonder to what extent it's like i mean of course he he, he published it but maybe it's just like he doesn't care You know what I mean? Like that, this people are reading this book. This is just what he does. He writes. This is what he does. Yeah. Like that's his, 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 the only way that he can grapple with these feelings. And, you know, I guess that's, it's, it doesn't make necessarily for an enjoyable book. It doesn't make it a good book necessarily, but it's this question of like, does he care if you don't understand it? The point is that he wrote it and that's how he needed, what he needed to do for himself. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, there was, I forget. I'm going to bungle this because I don't remember any of the details, but there was something, some person died and then they um, came to their apartment and there was like thousands and thousands of pages of this uh, story they wrote and illustrated, and I don't remember who it was. And right, and that sounds familiar. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like the person was amazed and found it really interesting and shared it, and uh, and it's totally up to the person consuming it whether they are interested and want to Consume the thing they made. They made it for themselves, right? And I don't necessarily hate on David Foster Wallace because I don't necessarily say that he made this and was like, "I'm a big old genius and everyone should read this." I mean, right. maybe he was. I don't know enough about him.
2: Yeah, I mean, and it's if not, he
1: was, that yeah. would have been a lot. But if it's like he wrote, "I wrote a thing. Yeah. I, I wrote a thing. I had to write it. Here it is."
2: Okay, I mean, it's it's not an excuse or defense. I mean, I think that uh, in other words, it could be the worst fucking book in the world, but. You know at the same time it's like maybe he didn't care i mean i think he he probably cared to an extent and that's what i think when we we described the plot and we were saying oh the plot doesn't matter i think maybe maybe it's like oh it has to have a plot so that people will read it and like this is the obligation of having a plot but it's all just sort of a skeleton on which to put these like oh you know i i want to t- talk about addiction this is how i do it you know but it, it you know it, it can still be like oh i don't really care for this you know kind of thing but maybe you know it's like the reason why people like it is that they, they, they read it and they're like, "Yeah, I felt that way too. And you know maybe you know, it's, it's like a great writer who can, you know, say what he's thinking and, and in such a way that people think that they're thinking that too. Yeah. Um, and I certainly felt that way about certain parts of the book, uh, for sure. So
0: I have been waiting, and it finally happened in the second to last episode of this first season. I've been waiting all season to do this. To a man, I am going to play devil's advocate. Mm. This is the first time I've been able to do this to a dude. I've done this to some women. I always feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Please. I think that the point of I think the plot is the point. I think that I think that there's a little bit of, of ego going on here, or even a lot. I think that I think that all the stuff with you know the addiction and all that stuff that, that came out. I be, I believe that I believe that that stuff. Came out in the writing because that's what he was feeling at the time. I think he sat down to write this book because he thought it'd be really, he thought it'd be really fucking funny, and he thought it would be like a really great exercise for him. And he, and like I think that because I'm also a writer, and 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 Mm. I throw in a lot of stuff that's personal. But when I start a new project, I don't, I don't go, hmm. I'm going to talk about my dad. Mm. Um, Right. I'm. I, I. I wake. I wake up and I'm like, I have this really cool idea. And it's going to be about a tennis academy in the future that is also tangentially responsible for the end of society because of this really addictive movie that people can't stop watching. I I think that he got excited. I mean, I don't think you can write a thousand pages of something and have it be beside the point.
1: I feel like, not that you're specifically doing this, but it's like, I feel like you're a little bit protecting... David Foster Wallace <laughs> from our um, criticisms Shh, Okay. a little. I don't know if that's really what's happening, mm-hmm. which it's like, uh, of course, it's a podcast and we're discussing a criticism, so it can sound kind of harsh, I guess, but it's like, okay, I don't hate the man. The man wrote some things, but it is a really long book that has taken 100 hours of my life or yeah. more, and we're discussing whether it's, was worth that 100 hours and yeah. i think his <laughs> intentions are not really that important mm. c- when we're discussing the value of the book. I, sure, I yeah, yeah
0: i would agree with that. Uh one of my favorite movies about writing um it's just that's a small subgenre is um the film Barton Fink uh yes. by the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh and there are two writers uh in that there's Barton Fink the the protagonist he's a playwright that is invited to hollywood to be a screenwriter and then there's his his uh, his idol which is like a stand-in for william faulkner don't remember what the character's name was mm-hmm. but um they're having a discussion about why they write and barton goes on to this like long rather self-important spiel about how he writes to describe the human condition how he writes to elevate the common man and how he writes to to do all of these things that are sort of outside of himself and like and he has all this ambition and like purpose to his writing, and then uh, the Faulkner stands and just smiles at him, and he says, "Me personally, I just like to tell stories."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, I think that's instructive. I, I think I don't think I think I think he's doing a little Barton Fink in here. I, I think he's doing a little bit of like externalizing his intentions, mm-hmm. um, and that's just us. You know, that's just Hannah and I saying that. Uh, I. I I think it's a lot of really beautiful writing. And I, I, I wish it were just a little bit more accessible. Not that I not that I didn't get it, I got it. Mm-hmm. But like I just don't think that the journey was worth just it. It's just
1: ten percent more humility. You know what yeah. I mean? Ten percent of like, I'm just trying to tell a story. I'm not trying to write my magnum opus. It's too much pressure. Yeah. I yeah. feel like no one's Magnum opus I feel like if you set out to write the great american novel it's like that's too high of an expectation just tell a story the greatest american novels are just a story that represents that we after it was done we're like that represents to me something bigger than the story yeah right but that's kind of up to us
0: i don't think this thing is is as beloved as as you would think right that's my impression I i i think that there's i think i think it's a status symbol
2: yeah, that's what I would say. Is I think the accomplishment of having read it is what's beloved. It's this. It's yeah. this competitiveness of like I've, I've, you know, it's like a trophy in a way. You know, like when a guy puts it on their bookshelf, it's a, it's like a trophy. It's like just another uh, thing that uh, signifies their uh, intelligence. Um, so yeah, I mean, but in a way, you know, maybe that was in achieving achieving that accomplishment that drove me to to to, to want to read it, and so. Maybe, maybe in a way, I, I can sort of relate to that.
1: I feel it. It must be beloved, right? Because why are we talking about it?
0: <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna discuss <laughs> that. It, we're gonna discuss that in the second episode. Yeah. Um, but we are gonna wrap this up. I do want to read one more excerpt, uh, brief excerpt, uh, and then we're gonna wrap this up. Um, and I think this one is instructive. I, I I hope it is of what we've just been talking about, and. Um, it's about uniqueness and why that's maybe not so special. So this is what David Foster Wallace has to say about that topic from Infinite Jest. People of a certain age and level of lifelike experience believe they're immortal. College students and alcoholics are the worst. They deep down believe they're exempt from the laws of physics that I ironly govern everybody else. They'll piss and moan your ear off if somebody else fucks with the rules but they don't deep down see themselves subject to them the same rules. And they're constitutionally unable to learn from anybody else's experience. If some jaywalking BU student gets his car towed, your other student or addict's response to this will be to ponder just what imponderable difference makes it possible for that other guy to get splattered or towed and not him, the ponderer. They never doubt the difference. They just ponder it. It's like a kind of idolatry of uniqueness. Again, that's a little that's a, a little impenetrable himself there a bit. Um, I got that one. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I. It's interesting because like reading this thing is like that's like a symbol of uniqueness. I am, I am the guy who read Infinite Jest. Mm. I'm smarter than all my friends, and their 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 rules of mortality do not govern me anymore because my brain has consumed this thousand page book. Um. I guess that's all I have to say about that. I
1: I, I think David Foster Wallace is very smart. Absolutely. And of I course. And I think he has interesting thoughts and I think plot-wise the magical realism moments where you know it's so near to the world that we live in and yet it has these sort of eerie differences some of which are a little On the nose, you know, branding the year. But hey, this is the '90s. Idiocracy hadn't come out. Yeah. Um, But some are very cool. There'll be there are certainly moments where reality shifted in a way that I was like, oh, this is interesting. It just is like, I don't fully trust in his. Genius, so that each thing feels purposeful, gotcha. and I like the moments that I find interesting are a pleasant, uh, exciting moment. But then there's so many where I'm like, "Is this interesting?" So it's, um, I hearing individual parts makes me be like, "Okay, I've read. I read some valuable things. Yeah. It's just so hard to remember. It's, just what it's the good parts
0: in a were. morass of pages, basically." Mm-hmm. All right, that is unfortunately all we have time for. This has been the most scholarly, erudite. (laughs) We have not, we have not talked about one fart joke yet, (laughs) of which there were plenty, by the way, in Infinite Jest. There's a lot of farts and shits going on in this book. Um, Sorry, Dave, we didn't get to those, but uh, (laughs) we will be back next week to continue this discussion. Um, Hannah, tell everyone listening where they can find you on the internet and elsewhere.
1: Um. Google me, hannahcorrigan.com, uh, Instagram at photo, and I'm literally um, starting Twitter <laughs> like this <laughs> week, because somebody told me that I just have to, um, and right now it's Hannah C. is a human bee
0: Nice on Twitter,
1: but I'm going to do my first tweet, so y'all should like
0: it. Well, that's a momentous occasion. All right, and Chris uh, is not uh, a social media user, but uh, be on the lookout for him. Chris, you are a filmmaker and a curator of of films, is that correct?
2: Yes, that's right. Um, I just uh, worked my second year programming the Asian American International Film Festival here in New York, which is, uh, well, it's happening right now. Uh, I guess we will have been over, but uh, hopefully getting more involved in those kinds of uh, film festival-type projects in New York
0: yeah be on the lookout for more of that i'm sure i'm sure chris uh will be uh joining them again next year asian american film festival and uh anything else comes up i will let everyone in the listening audience know uh and as for me uh as always i am gina bloom you can find me on all social media at gina bloom j-e-e-n-a-b-l-o-o-m Uh, If you're in the Los Angeles area, you can catch me on September 17th uh, at the Comedy Central stage for Sit and Spin, uh, the storytelling show. Uh, And uh, you can find me right here on the More Banana Network for Sweet, the lady's guide to bro culture. It is nearly the end of the season, but go back and make sure you listen to all of the episodes you have not heard. And we will be back next week for the big fat season finale. I hope you guys have enjoyed the season, and I thank you so much. I'll talk to you next week for the last time. Goodbye.
1: Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless,
0: I have the answer.
1: It's a podcast called Sleepwave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleepwave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice.